Yeah, what, what's the issue with that? Well, that it's an official helping a player off the ice. We just yeah, we got so it. We, we got a text about it. No, but if if you're Vancouver, do you raise a stink? Like if he's hurt, like you don't uh, pick him up and take. Come I'm just on. listen, listen, listen. Li Elliot, Elliot, calm down. No, no, no. I'm gonna be enraged, enraged. Okay. Only can I tell you this? I'm gonna light up Canucks Twitter on fire. I'm gonna say. Only a Canuck fan on social media would complain about that. 32 Thoughts, welcome once again to your favorite podcast brought to you by the all-new GMC Sierra HD. Merrick, alongside Friedman and old Dom Shramati. It is sticking, Elliot. It is sticking. Uh, lots to get to. Jacob Truba we will discuss. We'll discuss Marc-Andre Fleury uh, and his mask from Friday night. Uh, we should also park some time to talk about the Columbus Blue Jackets in a situation that they find themselves in. We should also park some time to talk about teams you may or may not be concerned about. We're going to get there shortly. But let's open up by talking about Patrick Kane. And on Saturday's headlines and on your blog last week, you discussed how Patrick Kane had done a lot of research into the Detroit Red Wings. And you've also mentioned a couple of different times how difficult it's been to get any information out of this story. So if he's doing a lot of information seeking around the Detroit Red Wings, it's not exactly a surprise then that no information is getting out. Are the winds blowing the wings way? Jeffrey, the easiest and most simple answer to your question is yes. Some of the winds are blowing towards Detroit. But if you know any meteorologists or anyone who's delivered the weather on television, like the current host of Hockey Night in Canada, Ron McLean, who was a weatherman earlier in his career, you know that they will tell you that winds can blow different directions at the same time. And as someone said to me on Sunday morning discussing my conversations about Kane, quote, no one hedges better than Elliot Friedman. And that's true. I freely admit I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And I don't know everything about this situation, although I'm going to try to give you every piece of information that I do have. One of the things that's very clear about this is Patrick Kane wants no leaks. He's definitely limited the amount of information and his camp, the people around him have been very tight because that's what the client wants. So the taps, the faucets and the washers are all screwed on tight and sealed. It hasn't been easy. The other factor that I think is a big part of this is that not all of the teams, like, you know, for example, Detroit has cap room, Buffalo has cap room, but many of the other teams in the league don't. And they want it to be kept quiet because, for example, if you're going to bring in Kane at a number closer to where he wants to be, you might have to do some surgery to your roster. And you can completely understand why those managers would want that to be quiet to avoid the speculation in case they're not the team that gets Kane. Why have the headache or the aggravation if Kane's not going to be there when you know even being linked to his presence makes people say, oh, what are they going to have to do to bring in Patrick Kane? Then you add in some of the obvious dislike of these general managers to have their plans out in the open. The Minister of Secrecy, Lou Lamorello, the Deputy Minister of Secrecy, Steve Eiserman. Like these guys aren't going to want anyone they're going to know what they're up to, whether it's Patrick Keene or a waiver transaction. They just don't like it. So I think all of that has contributed to the cone of silence 
uh, around this. I mean, Detroit, there's, there's a lot of things about it that make sense. There's his longtime relationship with Alex Dabrinkit. They have the cap room. It's easy and simple travel. Detroit's got a lot of short trips to a lot of places. And to be perfectly honest, there was one person who said to me, look, if you're worried about the travel in the Western Conference, why would you want to go to Florida when Florida and Tampa Bay have the worst travel in the Eastern Conference? They're, you know, remote outposts compared to a lot of the other places. Now, I don't know that that's what Kane is going to be overly worried about. I've had people suggest it to me, but, you know, I just thought I would mention it because I thought it was interesting that somebody uh, brought that up. So, you know, here's the the best information uh, I can give you. And again, I'm going to say that it's been a challenge to get it, and I can't guarantee it's 100% right, but I want to give you an, uh, an idea of what people are saying out there. The people I'm sharing this from, they're people who have good batting averages generally. They are not baseball players who hit below the Mendoza line. And if you don't know what the Mendoza line is, uh, that was named after a, a former major leaguer by the name of Mario Mendoza, who I think had a below 200 batting average uh, in his major league career, I think half of the years he played. So they call it the Mendoza line if you hit below 200. These guys are more Tony Gwynn, Ted Williams type. They they have good numbers. They They make good contact. So one of these people believes it's going to be Detroit. Another one said he thinks that Kane was kind of down to a combination. You know, I said on Saturday night it was two to three teams. He thinks that's a combination of Detroit, Florida, and I have kind of discounted Dallas, but he has not done that. You know, the issue I have with Dallas is I think Kane would love to play there, I'm just not sure Dallas thinks it's the best idea for them. I think they feel that they, if they're going to add, it's going to be on defense. And the other thing that you know, someone pointed out to me is it's an interesting one because Dallas knows what it's like to have players recover from hip surgery. Look, Ben's been through it. Sagan's been through it. And you know what this individual said to me was there's probably no team in the league that would have as good an idea on what Kane is capable of doing or not doing than the Stars. So I just wanted to include them. I do think Kane's been very interested in on them. I've just waffled on the idea if Dallas really wants to do this. Now, I will also say this. A couple of people have agreed with me that there's, there's definitely things we're not seeing. There's teams who have been involved in this that we haven't figured out yet. And all I'll say is this. There are a couple of teams out there who suspect, they they said, look, Toronto looked into it, even though it doesn't make sense because it's kind of in Tree Living's DNA to look into things. And there's a couple teams out there who suspect that Boston might be another team that's poked around on this. And Again, it's all circumstantial evidence, but it makes sense because the thing about Boston is, you know, they're a good team. They could win. Um, I don't know if they could do more than one year. I'm not sure that makes any sense for them, but 
they are the kind of organization that would look at Kane and say, does this help us? Or in a good year, what can we add to make us better? If you look last year, they went for it. They lost in the first round. They gave up a lot of capital, but it was a go-for-it year for them. And I just think there are teams who suspect that this is a player that won't cost you um, anything in terms of draft picks or prospects. He's a free agent, and they're good again. And I just thought I would mention it because it does kind of fit with Boston's DNA of we're good, what can we add, at what cost? And this makes sense to me. So that's kind of where I think everybody here is. And once again, I am prepared to be end up on freezing cold takes because I'm not 100% accurate. Kane's made this hard, but that's the, the best information I can give you at this point in time. I'm really curious about the Detroit one. They have the cap room. They have the space on the roster. They're doing very nicely so far this season. As we look on Sunday night... They're sitting there very much in contention in the Atlantic Division in the Eastern Conference. They have the second-best goal differential in their division. They have the third-best goal differential in the conference. And there are a lot of people who look at that stat and say, if your goal differential is good, it really says something about who you are. So I definitely think there's a lot of people wondering about Detroit And whether or not he ends up there, I can't tell you for sure on this Monday morning, but I definitely think they're a serious team to watch in this. Uh, Well, let's park it here a little bit and talk about the Detroit Red Wings because, you know, you compare them to the Los Angeles Kings and they're getting contributions up and down the lineup. And if we get a chance later on, I wouldn't mind gushing a little bit about Trevor Moore, who's very quietly turning in an outstanding season for the Kings. But... Um, to the Detroit Red Wings, don't look now, but Alex Lyon's been really good for them. Sunday afternoon with the win over Minnesota, the 4 nothing shutout against the New Jersey Devils. Uh, JT Comfer has been fantastic. Lucas Raymond has been really good. Like I know things didn't go, I don't know, for each, how do you say it, swimmingly for the Detroit Red Wings in Sweden. But since they've come back, I mean, they kind of dusted the Boston Bruins here. And now they've put, you know, another nail in the Minnesota Wild coffin Sunday afternoon as well. I mean, if you're auditioning to bring Patrick Kane into the mix right now, since they've come back from Sweden, Detroit's doing a good job. They've played very, I mean, they're a plus 14 team. You know, that's the thing. In their division, plus 14 is the second best number. Only Boston's better at plus 19. In the conference, plus 14 is third best. Only the Rangers and the Bruins are better. If you're a believer that goal differential is a a real strong indicator of who you are, and there are definitely people in the game who believe that very strongly, that says the Red Wings are for real, that they're going in the right direction. They're building something. They're banking points. And, you know, I I get it. Um, The one thing I'm going to be curious about when Patrick Kane makes his decision, and it might take a while to figure this all out, is what were all the offers here? What could teams do? Was it going to be, were some teams going to say, look, we only want to do one year? Were some teams willing to say, look, we'll do the rest of the year and then nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we'll see, we'll see? Or... Was, were other teams going to say, yeah, we're we're definitely willing to do multiple years, whatever you think? 
So, I mean, I'm going to be curious about this, but the Red Wings are one of the teams, and, you know, the Sabres are another team. They have the opportunity to do term and and make it work, and not everybody had the ability to do that. Uh, you want to circle back and talk a little about Alex Lyon, who was, as we all know, fantastic for the Panthers last season and has looked tremendous in the games that he's played this season. Here's my question that I have for you about Alex Lyon, who's been excellent in the last couple of games for the Detroit Red Wings when he's played. Is he this year's Charlie Lindgren? The goaltender that you know everyone looked at and said, okay, that's a good signing, but turns out to be a great one for the team. What? Why would you pick someone else and not this year's Alex Lyon? Alex Lyon is this how soon Alex you Lyon forget signing. what he did last season. <laughs> you know, yeah, Sergei Bobrovsky great. had the had the great playoff run for the Panthers, but in the games of mortal significance for them last year, who won them games to get them into the playoffs? Alex Lyon. And not only did he win games, but in the playoffs, he was giving creepy stares at the camera that were freaking me out on a nightly basis. <laughs> but, you know, I thought Lyon was one of the underrated good signings this offseason. Two times 900K in Detroit. I thought that was a great pickup. Then they go out and get Reimer, and Lyon has to sit the first 15 games of the season. Now he gets an opportunity. He's won three in a row. He's helping right the ship, as you said, Jeff. He's a pro. He's an absolute pro. And if I was one of these teams that was looking for goaltending, I would be looking at Lyon right now. Now, you might not be able to get him. Iserman's probably saying, no way, I need him. But I, I, I have mad respect for anyone who can sit the first 15 games of the season and come in hot like this. You have every excuse to fail in those situations. And Alex Lyon's like, big deal. I got this. One thing we should mention with the Red Wings as well, coming off of uh, Sunday's win against the Wild, uh, David Perron, I know you like him. Uh, yeah, I'm a big David Perron guy. Big David Goals Perron number 299 guy. and 300. One of the best one-timers in the game. David smart, Perron, smart, high IQ yep. guy. Yep, love David Perron. Now, at the other end of the rink on Sunday afternoon, the Minnesota Wild. Um, 0-5-2 in their last seven. Losers of 13 of their last 16. And about all of this, who said it's effing unacceptable? Guys should be pissed off. Who Dean said Everson. that from Minnesota? No. Mm, that sounds like a Dean Everson thing to say. Mike Russo? No. Well, I'm sure. <laughs> on <laughs> sure Twitter? Mike. I'm sure Mike Russo might have whispered it once or twice over the streak. Hmm. Marcus Foligno. No, but good guess. Do you want me to guess the whole roster, or are you just going to no, tell me? No, you could just you could just give up, and I'll say it's Pat Maroon. Oh, uh, that fits him too. Yeah, big time. That that definitely fits him too. So here here becomes the question: If it is as Pat Maroon so eloquently puts it, and who said hockey isn't full of poets? Effing mm -hmm. unacceptable. Uh, what does Bill Guerin do about this? What can Bill Guerin do about this? Like the thing about Guerin is we've talked before on this podcast about how he's very impulsive. When he's, when he's talking about trades, he doesn't necessarily go out there to create a market. 
he decides what he wants to do. He sees what he wants to get and he kind of goes out and does it. You know, earlier this year when he signed a bunch of players to extensions, he decided he wanted to do that and he goes out and he does it. He's, he's that kind of a guy. Right now, Bill Guerin is trying to be the opposite of that guy. He is trying to be calm. He is trying not to race into any kind of move. He is bending over backwards to be fair to his head coach. He's a big believer in Everson. He gave him an extension. And he, in everything he does when it comes to Everson, he recognizes that they're shorthanded because of their salary cap penalties. He's very, very fair about that. Eventually, though, you get into the position that Edmonton got in and you say, we can't wait any longer. Now, I will say this. We have seen a situation where we thought that was going to happen on Long Island and Lou Lamorello outweighted it. And he said, nope, I'm not doing it. And he he's definitely lasted a lot longer without making a move, any kind of move, than we all thought was going to happen. Garen's in that zone now. He's in that zone where you expect him to do something, something. And the biggest, and the Islanders could outweigh it for now. The Oilers could not. How long can he wait? Well, the losses have piled up and the month is drawing to a close. And now we have players that are speaking publicly. Yeah, but that that's normal. I mean, what do you what else do you expect the players to say? Like that's I get I get that. That's normal. That's normal. You can tell though that the players have hit a point, or at least some of the players have hit a point, have hit a breaking point here. And we'll see where this uh, story goes with Minnesota. One more story on Minnesota. Um, and this is bigger than all of them. Marc-Andre Fleury and the Native Heritage Night mask that he wore in warm-up before the game against the Colorado Avalanche. Um, Technically, it violates league policy, Mm -hmm. but there is no fine. How do you see this entire situation? You know, obviously, um, this whole thing has been galaxy-brained. And... There, there has to be a way to fix this. The way it's set up, it isn't working for anyone. Um, so Flurry in the Wild uh, approached the league, I believe, in September about this. And at the time, the policy was new and everything being equal, they were kind of told, look, this isn't going to be able to happen in terms of wearing it. And then since then, Travis Dermott, use the pride tape, no penalty, and there shouldn't have been a penalty. There's no way there should have been a penalty, and there wasn't. And then what does Fleury see? He sees that, and he also sees that Bobrovsky and Grubauer are able to wear their Hockey Fights cancer masks during games. Now, it's since been explained that they were allowed to wear those masks during games because they've done it before. But 
to Fleury and a lot of other people, they're going to say like, you know, that's ridiculous. Either you can wear them or you can't. So what I think here is it gets closer to the date. Fleury sees that Dermot, no punishment, Grubauer and Bobrovsky allowed to wear it. Why should my mask be any different? And it's important to him for two reasons. The indigenous message in honor of his wife's family. And also there's a quote there from his father that's very meaningful to him. And nobody in the right frame of mind has any problem with the idea of Fleury wearing this mask. No one. There's no reason for him not to wear it. And I don't think there's a single person out there who would have a problem with him wearing it. And ultimately, at the end of the day, he wore it. No fine, no penalty to him or the organization, which I think is what, like anyone who doesn't think that's the right thing, I don't care about their opinion in the first place. So I was having a conversation with someone who works for another league. And, you know, we were talking about this. And, you know, one of the things I think that has to happen is there's a player inclusion committee. And there's a lot of players on this committee, some of whom are NHLers, some of whom no longer are, some of whom are women's players. Um, You know, there's a whole cross-section of people there who want to be involved and want to do things that will benefit the sport. And, for example, there are some Indigenous players on this committee, and I can't imagine, as that story blew up on Friday, it was really easy for them. Um, you're probably sitting there and saying, wait, like, I don't want to be a part of this if I'm going to be included in something that it looks like I'm blocking this mask from being worn. So that's one thing they, they have to fix. You can't put the people on the players inclusion committee in a bad spot. But you know, the, the thing that Uh, we were talking about is what he thinks is going on. And I suspect he's right. I don't want to get too deeply into this. This is not the podcast for it, but I, I think it's relevant to mention. There's a lot of really difficult things going on in the world right now. A really, a lot of hard conflict, sad conflict, painful conflict on multiple fronts, and there are people who are worried that there is going to be more. And it affects people of all backgrounds, uh, different cultures. Everybody out there knows what I'm talking about. And what he told me, and he said it's the case in his league, and he bets it's the case in the NHL too, that what they're worried about is not things like Fleury's mask, what they're worried about is that someday someone's going to want to put something on, whether it's a patch or a sticker or something, that is going to be incredibly divisive, whether it's a flag or a symbol or something like that. And he thinks that that's what all of these leagues are grappling to deal with because they do think there's going to be a day where something like that is going to happen. And that's what he thinks that this is all about. And, you know, I thought that was an interesting perspective. I still think the NHL has to find a better way to handle this because even if that is the reason, things like pride tape and the flurry mask in this case shouldn't uh, be punished for that or shouldn't be uh, removed for that or prevented from being worn for that. 
But the more I thought about um, what he said to me, the more I wonder if the issue is not what we've seen, but if they're worried about what we could see. I don't have a great answer, but it did pop into my head. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a better job of clearing things like pride tape and this flurry mask, but he does believe that that's potentially what we're talking about here. Well, the, um, and I'm sure the league has, has talked about this as I'm sure other people have talked about this as I'm sure you've talked about this as well. What the NHL now is set up though, Elliot, and this is where I think you're right. They need to come up with a solution for this when we get there and make no mistake about it. We will get there in this sport right now the way that it's been set up and the way that it's been established is there's no consequence because if you wear something like, listen, we're heading to a very emotional election stateside and who knows? I think that's a very fair point too. And uh, you know, who knows what a goalie is going to want to put on his back plate or a player's going to want to wear on his gloves or, or whatever it is, or on his skates. Right now, the way it's set up, that will be consequence-free. That's why I'm with you. Like, I think the NHL, like, this problem is is not over. And this is not a solution. You know, the election's a, a fair one, too. That's going to be a, a hotly contested emotional election. Okay. On, uh, on, on that, we'll take our first break. Uh, when we come back, more news from around the NHL and also the Montana's Thought Line. Back in a couple of moments on 32 Thoughts. Listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. All right, time now, Elliot, and welcome back to the podcast for a segment that's uh, that's really grown on me. Like, I like this more and more every week. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, mainly because the, uh, the questions, not necessarily the answers, have been excellent. It's the Montana's Thought Line, Montana's Barbecue and Bar, Canada's home for barbecue, Elliot. Try the ribs. 32thoughts at sportsnet.ca is the email. Again, 32thoughts at sportsnet.ca. That is the number 32, by the way. And 1-833-311-3232. Say it slower, dummy. 1-833-311-3232 is the phone line. Nick in Vancouver. Hi, guys. I was watching Canucks versus Avs on Wednesday. Elliot, you know how much I enjoy it when people pull examples out of actual games. Mwah, chef's kiss. The commentator mentioned he thought Colorado's offensive rush was offside, but it wasn't called. The Avs player came down the wing and snapped the shot, which Demko froze. This, of course, resulted in an offensive zone faceoff for Colorado. This got me thinking. In the right situation, could the Canucks or any given team challenge for offside despite no goal being scored, to avoid having to take a defensive zone face-off. I'm thinking a team would only do this if the offside non-call was extremely obvious and they were defending a one-goal lead late in the game. I respect the question. The answer is no. You can only challenge a goal. Thankfully. <laughs> <Let's> <laughs> Could not you imagine if they were just challenging regular offsides? <laughs> oh, All right. It's 3.46 in the morning. It's We've got five minutes left in regulation. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for staying up. Uh, the, all the dark circles under your eyes for work tomorrow. I love um, the creativity, but the answer is no. Right. By the uh, way, I got to talk yes. to you about something before we get back to the thought line. 
no. You know what, what is the worst thing to happen in the NHL this year? Oh, there's a, that covers a lot of ground, but what do you <laughs> want to drill down on? All these officials saying we've got a goal. <laughs> this is going to go right to your head. And what well, makes it second worst is all the yeah. people tweeting at you Every to time. blow up your ego. Yes. Uh, yes. Like, I am convinced that yeah. this is a work by the officials <laughs> hearing you whine about it. No, just because you know, people attention. say just you've got a powerful voice in hockey. You can fix yeah. things. No, we oh, can't. Yeah. Yeah. We can fix things like referees saying good goal instead of goal, <laughs> but we can't fix anything important. I don't want to say that it's gone to my head, but uh, at the house here, we've widened the door frames so my head will fit in now, Elliot. That's right. Like I can fix, like I, I can fix nothing with the soup, but everything about the pepper and the parsley. How about that? Nothing about the actual soup itself. But if this, if they, put it this way, if this podcast had anything to do with more and more officials dropping the grammatically incorrect call of good goal and just calling it what it should be, rightfully, goal, then I am happy. And I can say part of our work here is done, Elliot. We've made hockey a better place because of it. And you can take some delight in that. I think that's debatable, but okay. <laughs> Tiffany in Madison, Wisconsin. And thank you to all officials who are calling it correctly. Thanks to everybody who tweets it at me because I turn around and send all those tweets right to Elliot Friedman's phone. I would like it. to complain to all the people who send those tweets because it makes Merrick even more impossible to deal with. The word is insufferable, but we shall carry on. <laughs> Tiffany in Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, Jelly Dom. It's sticking. Elliot, it's catching on. Oh First time, God. long time. I'll keep my question brief uh, for the newly initiated Jelly Dom is a combination of all three of our names. Jeff, Elliot, Dom, Minnick. Uh, I'll keep my question brief. I was watching the San Jose-Vancouver game and noticed that after Philip Hronick scored, they zoomed in on him sitting on the bench. Besides his luxurious beard, I noticed that he didn't have any tape on his stick. Having done mm. some research, I found ResTech, or Alternative Stick Grip Company, uh, if you can't say the company on the pod. Well, we just did, Restec. Here's my question. What kind of stick grip material is allowed on players' sticks? Obviously, as we saw earlier in the season, players can use whatever color tape they want, but are there rules about what kinds of stick grip technology they're allowed to utilize? Uh, P.S., can you shout out the Badgers women's hockey team? They are rock stars. I will always shout out the Wisconsin Badgers, specifically this year, third in the country. Elliot and Layla Edwards is a star there. And as you know, she became the first black player to suit up for the senior hmm. women's national hockey team. So go Badgers, go Layla Edwards. Good shot. Um, yeah. And you know what? You can use uh, anything that the NHL allows. And that, yeah. that counts for the American Hockey League as well. Like players can't use something that is not allowed by the National Hockey League. That's just, that's, that's standard. Yeah, anything approved, you can use it. Although they are making ex the the other thing they're doing right now is, especially when it comes to neck protection, they're rushing to approve things that yes. previously were not approved. So they are yes. really working to try to make a difference on some of this. I know the American Hockey League was maybe concerned is too strong a word, but you know the the American Hockey League, you know, to the point about getting 
neck guards on players quickly. One of their issues was the players weren't allowed to use anything that wasn't approved by the National Hockey League. But I think everybody around hockey um, just wanted to get as many neck guards on players as, as soon as possible. Uh, okay, voicemail time. Ryan in your old haunt, Elliot, London. Mm. Hi there, this is Ryan Maiden from London, Ontario. Um, just calling. I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, Elliot, Jeff, and uh, Dirty Dom. That's a wrestling term there. Oh, um, Dirty my, Dom. Two questions. First one, Elliot, um, did you ever try the Flying Tomato when you were at school in London? Number two, you frequently, you guys frequently talk about the over 35 deal. Uh, I've never heard of this before. Can you please explain it to me and maybe a few others like we are five? Uh, that's pretty much it. Thanks a lot, guys. Um, enjoy the show and keep up the good work. Um, thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, what's the flying tomato? Well, first of all, Dom, how do you feel about Dirty Dom? <laughs> I, I'll take it. Rolls off the tongue. Oh, okay. All right. Alliteration for the win. Uh, the flying tomato is a pizza store. If, if I have it right to what he's referring to, it's a pizza. It's a pizza place in uh, London, and I don't think it was there when I was there. Like I don't. I've heard of it now. Like students have told me about it, or people have told me about it, but I, I don't know that it was. It was in London when I was there. I don't remember ever trying it. From the way Ryan was talking about it, it sounded like I really missed out. But I, I, I don't remember ever trying it there. Uh, unfortunately. Um, okay. So over 35, when the NHL went to the salary cap, one of the things they did to penalize teams for signing players to contracts later in their careers were that if you signed a contract to a player who was 35 years old or older, and that was the first year of the deal, not you know, not for example, if you signed someone to a five-year contract when they were 33 years old, that didn't matter. If the first year of their deal began after they were 35, you couldn't take it off your cap. So if the player retired or uh, whatever happened, you were stuck with that contract on your cap. Or the player got injured and couldn't play again, too. That was the same deal. You were stuck and couldn't get rid of it off your cap. One of the most unique early cases was Chris Pronger. And Chris Pronger was 34 years old when he signed his seven-year extension in Philadelphia. But it didn't take effect because he signed it with a year to go in his original contract. It didn't take effect until 2010-11 when he'd already turned 35. So even though he signed that contract a year early, the NHL considered it an over 35 deal. And eventually he had to be traded to Arizona after, unfortunately, he had to end his career prematurely. So that's why they created this rule. They didn't want long-term contracts for older players, even Hall of Famers like Pronger. They wanted to punish teams who would make risky long-term bets with an older player. Now, since then, in one of the more recent CBAs, 
there was an adjustment to it. So there are ways you can structure an over 35 contract that don't penalize you in the same way. Basically, as long as you don't incredibly front load it, you can escape that kind of punishment. But that's what an over 35 contract is. It is a contract that punishes teams for giving term deals to older players. Excellent question. Uh, And thanks, Ryan, for that. We'll investigate the flying tomato, by the way. Uh, Okay, here is one from Vancouver. This is Dylan. This is an interesting one. Hey, guys, I was watching the Vancouver-Seattle game tonight and noticed the linesman helping Brandon Tanev off to the bench after a hit. So that was a neutral zone hit. Uh, Brandon Tanev got caught by Nils Hoaglander. He was obviously in a great deal of pain and needed assistance, but got me thinking. Is there any rule that prohibits referees from helping players from either team during the play that could give that player's team an advantage? I look forward to hearing your thoughts. And of course, this one's for you, Elliot, trying those ribs. Uh, The official in question, by the way, is Ryan Gibbons on that one, Elliot. Dylan. Young Dylan. We don't know that. I'm just going to call him Young Dylan. You're right. I don't know that, but. You know me, I don't mind being factually inaccurate, so I'm going to call him Young Dylan. Listen, compared to you and me, everyone's young. (laughs) Young Dylan, I cannot believe, are you are the type of person who would give a lump of coal to someone for Christmas? Are you honestly complaining (laughs) that the linesman was trying to help the player get to the bench? Um, To me, it's like, I thought there was a great situation in the league this week where... Dennis Gilbert got into a fight and the linesman caught him as he was going towards the ground. Yes. That is one situation I think that the NHL is about as afraid of as any, is a player going down hard on their head in a fight. And I understand what you're saying, Dylan, heartless heartless young Dylan. I understand (laughs) what you're saying, that technically that's an advantage, but yeah. I always believe but, we should err on the side of safety with players who are injured in the field of play. And just like uh, catching Dennis Gilbert on the way down, helping Tanev off the ice, to me, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, if Tanev was in that type of distress, there would have been a whistle. So here's the question that you ask yourself. Would you rather have Ryan Gibbons help him off the ice or a whistle at that moment? To me, that's when sort of common sense should take over and you realize that hockey is a shade of gray and not black or white. And you say to yourself, yeah, you know what? Gibbons made the right call there. The play continued and he helped Brandon Tanev, who was in some distress uh, after that collision with with Nils Hoglander. Um, but good call. Young, heartless Dylan from heartless, young, heartless, (laughs) coal giving. Oh, Dylan, Dylan, tough crowd, man. Tough crowd, man. You give give the Vancouver Canucks a couple of wins and this is what happens to their fan base. Heartless. You give them a good start to the season, man. They just want to harp on everybody. Okay. We'll finish up here with a voicemail. This is anonymous. Hey guys. Uh, just listening to the pod here on a grueling Friday afternoon at work and just listen to the part where you guys are talking about the Jersey tuck, uh, rule. And that got me wondering about other weird equipment, uh, rules. I know Chara has his exemption for his stick height because he is a mammoth of a man. And that got me wondering 
Has there ever been any other NHL players that got exemptions for? What just happened there? What was that? That's the end of the voicemail. So wait, oh, so okay. let me so let me get this straight. This anonymous caller, who someone is going to recognize, I think he's a dispatcher. I got this is the greatest voice message ever. So this anonymous caller. Yeah. who said, basically joked that nothing was happening in his work, yeah. cut off his call when something actually happened at work. That's potentially, fantastic. Potentially important, too. Who knows what he does for a living? <laughs> that That's awesome. It's a Friday afternoon. He's probably got an important job, but he's listening to the podcast and thinking about Zdeno Chara's stick. I, I'm trying to think of... You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the gif of the dog sitting in fire. Like, this is, this is fine. fine. Like, I'm imagining this guy sitting around a five-alarm blaze listening to the podcast and saying, everything is great. There's there's only two, Elliot, that I can think of. One is, you remember Jim Kite? Um, so Jim Kite was the first legally deaf player in the NHL, big defenseman, Winnipeg Jets, and he was allowed to wear hearing aids while he played right and the other i mean this is going in the way 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 back machine to the 1940s and that's netminder bill dernan who only played like eight or nine seasons in the nhl but the interesting thing about him was he was ambidextrous and so he had he had fashioned essentially two catchers and he wore one on each hand but they were fashioned so that he could switch his stick back and forth depending on which side the rush was coming at him. So he'd always have his glove exposed to the big part of the net. So that's what shooters would look at. Like that, those are the only two things that spring to mind right away. I'm sure if I, I don't know, did like some proper research. <laughs> uh, I have another one. one. I, I actually have another one got? I thought of. What do you got? I was thinking about it while you were talking. And I actually thought you were going to say it. Dan Blackburn. Oh, the two... Okay, you know what? One day I want to have a conversation with you about about Dan Blackburn's two blockers. Yes. So you know he why? so just to explain it first, he had uh, some a surgery on uh, his glove hand, which was his left hand, and um, as a result, he couldn't rotate it. So yeah. he was allowed and given the opportunity to wear two blockers, and and Dan Blackburn was. A, a real goalie. big prospect. You know, he was a 10th oh, yeah. overall draft pick in, in 2001. He was he was for real. But because of that surgery, he couldn't wear a glove, and the NHL allowed him to play with two blockers. Now, unfortunately, it just it didn't work to the level it was necessary, but that was a situation where he was given an equipment exemption. Elliot, we cannot have this conversation without mentioning the pontoon boats, which were the shin pads, owned by and worn by Craig Ludwig. Well, first of all, I don't know that there was a specific rule exception that he had, as opposed to him just saying, I'm going to dare anyone to stop me from doing any of this. <laughs> so I guess it was the 99 Stanley Cup final when they beat Buffalo yeah. and won the cup. But he was like people were doing a ton of stories on it and he was gleefully pulling them out of his stall and showing them to oh, reporters yeah. or television cameras. I remember years later, I was still at the score at the time, but years later, I remember people talking about, you know, how, what do we have to do to improve offense in the NHL and more scoring? 
And someone said to me, it would help if all of you guys stopped glorifying things like Craig Ludwig's shin pads. Should we be encouraging players to have phone books on their legs to help them block shots? And I, I thought that was pretty funny. But I don't know if that was a specific exemption or Ludwig was just like, it's better to beg for forgiveness than ask oh. for permission. <laughs> it's like a second goalie out there. People love it when I annoy you with ideas. So here we go again. Oh. As a way, as a way to increase scoring and stop whistles, how would you no feel gloves? if all netminders had to play with two phone books? I, I, I'm against that. You cannot, can you not make the argument that catching a puck is delay of game? Oh. Just go down the street with me a little bit. Let's go for a walk, Elliot. Let's go for a walk. <laughs> what if I don't want to go for this particular <laughs> walk? On, let's go for a little walk. Let's go for a little stroll, you and me. Talk about blockers. <laughs> I have a headache. Keep the play hot. Okay, thanks for all the uh, the hot, tasty emails and voicemails. Uh, the Montana's Thought Line, Montana's Barbecue and Bar, Canada's home for barbecue. Uh, we'll step away, albeit briefly, when we return a situation with the Columbus Blue Jackets where a player wants to go back home. Also, Elliot wants to talk about, checks notes, CM Punk. That's next. Before we get back to our regular programming, we need to talk about our partner montana's barbecue and bar taco boat really that's right with five dollar tacos available every tuesday satisfy any taco craving when you try their seasoned grilled chicken mexi spiced beef kapow shrimp or mixed veggie options mix and match to try them all or add one to the side of your favorite montana's item five dollar tacos at montana's barbecue and bar every tuesday some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. Okay, Elliot, a few things to finish up the podcast with today. And uh, we all hope that everyone has an enjoyable week on the horizon here uh, and gets to watch some really good hockey. Colorado is playing Tampa tonight, by the way. That should be a doozy. Meanwhile, um, quick thought. Um, listen, the Rangers are hot. Top team. They're playing tremendous hockey. Jacob Truba has always been a flashpoint for either this team or the Winnipeg Jets or the University of Michigan Wolverines. You know, this goes back. This is Jacob Truba. Uh, $5,000 fine for hitting Trent Frederick in the head with his hockey stick. Um, there are a lot of howls out there for this being too too soft of a punishment, too weak of a punishment to which you say what? I, I have to say I never thought I would see the day where Larry Brooks and the Department of Player Safety were on the same side of an argument. I was looking for the four horsemen to come over the apocalypse as I saw his tweet uh, during the day. Um, I thought it should have been at least a game. Like, at least a game. I thought he should have gotten a suspension for that. Look, I know there's another angle that shows uh, Trent Frederick grabbing Truba's stick, but you, you have to be responsible on some level. Like, there are penalties in NHL games for being reckless with your stick. And he was reckless, and 
I thought you should have gotten at least a game. I think you have to send a message that that's not okay. Because a lot of things can go wrong with that. So I, I was surprised. I was shocked, actually. Hmm. I thought there should have been at least a suspension there to send the message. You? I looked at it and said, this is either going to be a fine or a like 10-game suspension. Because if you thought it was uh, not deliberate, it's going to be a fine. If it was accidental, I understand being in control of your stick. I know you're going to go with that argument. But if it was deemed that it was deliberate, then there's no way it's going to be a one, two, three, four, or five game suspension. That's going to be like a 10 or 15. So I looked at it. It all depends on whether you thought it was accidental and there were mitigating circumstances, most notably Trent Frederick grabbing his stick. And that's the way ultimately it was ruled. Again, I thought it was going to be one extreme or the other. It was either going to be a major suspension or a fine. That's yeah, I Again, I can understand where you're coming from on this one. I can. I think you can send a message and say, look, it was more reckless than intentional, but sometimes you get penalized in this game for being reckless. And I think there are times you have to send a message. Okay, I want everyone to know that this is not going to be happening. Elliot, like I always tell you, I'd agree with you if you were right. <laughs> Jeff, the funniest text message I got about that Truba fine, no suspension. Somebody said to me, does Jeremy Jacobs no longer have any influence in the NHL? Because when someone saw it was Boston, they were like, for sure, that's getting punished. Maybe the NHL just really likes the New York Rangers now. All right, Columbus, like there are a lot of things that Columbus <laughs> has done that they're responsible for. This doesn't fall into that category. The uh, Dmitry Voronkov no. situation uh, is homesick, um, would like to go back to Russia. Um, it sounds like the Blue Jackets organization is doing a lot to accommodate him and surround him with people. So he's, just to be blunt, not so lonely or doesn't feel like he's out there on an island. Um, first of all, you think you care for the person. Second of all, you care for the player. And he's been a really good addition to this team this season. Big, strong. He's playing on a, on a good line with Adam Fentilli and Patrick Laine right now. Um, your thoughts on the Voronkov situation in Columbus? Like it's, a, it's a tough thing because he looks like a really talented player who can help you. And... You know, you, you, you watch him play and you say, oh, okay, like here's a player who's making a really nice adjustment to North America. It's his first time playing here. He's been in Russia until now and everything must be going swimmingly. And it sometimes it's a reminder that just because of something that looks good on the ice, not everything is a perfect picture off the ice. And on a level here, I, I really feel for the Blue Jackets because – like they're going through a tough time and he's been one of their really good stories. And as you said, this one is not their fault. Uh, you know, the, this is a player who is having obviously a, a challenging time adapting socially to North America or missing uh, his life back home. And I saw where uh, Yarmo Kekalainen told Aaron Portsline that they're going to try to involve Fetter Tutin 
who is a guy who really loved his time in Columbus to help him out here and see if that can bridge the gap. But it's it's a challenge. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a week where we saw, you know, Samuel Girard say he's going into the player assistance program because of his his challenges with anxiety, which I think a lot of people understand have gotten him into a position where he needs to go into the program. I think everybody empathizes with that. And so it's just, it's it's a really tough thing for the Blue Jackets because here's a player, like one of the things everybody's been talking about is their young players have really been the salvation in what's been a really tough situ- a season. And this is one of the guys. And now you find out, oh, he's not sure that he's going to last because he's just not comfortable for whatever reason. It's, it's a tough one for Columbus. I don't think there's an easy answer there because I think on, on a level, we all understand just plop us all into a different situation. Some of us are going to find a way to handle it. And some of us aren't. One quick note from your update on Saturday on headlines on hockey night in Canada. Um, I found this interesting that uh, Jack Campbell has brought many legacy um, goalie coach, uh, former NHL goaltender to work with him in Bakersfield. Now, Campbell bought a place at uh, Port Huron, Michigan, uh, and they started working together in the summer. So on one hand, it should probably be no surprise. But I just thought that that was a, an intriguing note. Can you share that one with the listeners? Yes. Yeah, so Manny Legacy and and Campbell worked together really well um, in the offseason. As you mentioned, it was the first time they worked together. And one of the reasons I really thought the Oilers were going to be okay is that Campbell had a dynamite preseason. I was actually at one of the games in Calgary where it was the Flames with a lot of their NHL roster against the Oilers with a lot of what was definitely not their NHL roster. And Campbell beat them. Um, he, He was fantastic. And I looked at that and I said, well, whatever he's been working on, it looks good. And obviously we found out, you know, it, it wasn't. But I think what Campbell said here was, can I bring him here to maybe rediscover some of my mojo from the summer? Maybe that will help. And the Oilers approved it knowing that they need Campbell to get back to a level. I mean, Campbell finding his game again is going to be a lot better option for Edmonton than paying like say a first round pick to trade him or eating 10 million and buying him out in the off season. Like there's no question the better option is can we find a way to fix him. And I, I thought it was interesting that he called for legacy and the team had no issue with it. At this point in time, whatever benefits Campbell is good business for the Edmonton Oilers. Just so our listeners understand why that's significant. I mean, the Bakersfield Condors do have a goalie coach, uh, Sylvain Rodrigue. His son is a prospect, Olivier Rodrigue, for the, the Oilers as well. And in a situation like that, Elliot, I think a lot of teams might say that's a little too awkward for us. But to your point, whatever's going to help Jack Campbell, you do correct? Yes. A thousand percent. Yes. Elliot, before we get to our our final note, just is there anything new with the Corey Perry situation and the Chicago Blackhawks? Not so much on Sunday, Jeff. The one thing I've been trying to figure out is, you know, just what's the process here? 
how is everything going to, is it simply a matter of, uh, you know, Perry um, being at home and he'll return and the black or, you know, ultimately whose decision is it when the time comes that Perry wants to return or the Blackhawks bring him back? You know, the one thing I just say is that there were a lot of people who, who felt that the two statements, the one from Kyle Davidson, his media conference, and the one from Pat Morris uh, that was released to a few members of the media were contradictory. I don't believe that. I, I just think that because the two things don't exactly say the same, it doesn't mean that one's true and one's not. You know, the Blackhawks said it was an organizational decision. And the statement from Pat Morris says he's away with his family. So they don't necessarily disagree with each other, but we've got to wait to see how this plays out. I, I know people want more information, particularly where the Blackhawks are concerned. Um, and I, I have no doubt, no doubt that the Blackhawks are sensitive and recognize that perception. But sometimes when it's a personnel matter or a personal matter with a player or an employee, you have to let things play out a certain way. I was talking to an HR lawyer friend of mine about this. And, you know, he's a big hockey fan, so he's aware of the situation. And he was just saying that, you know, even the Blackhawks, everybody wants answers from them. There still is a process that you have to play out. And, and I know that's not going to satisfy everybody, but he told me that's that's the way it often works. I'll echo what you said on Saturday as well. In this situation, uh, I slash we, I'll just help that everybody involved here is okay. All right. So was it late Saturday night or early Sunday morning? I it was late Saturday me. night. So I, so I want to take ownership of this next segment, Jeff. Okay, you, you go for it. <laughs> so what people may remember a few years ago is that when the NHL player media tour was in Chicago, I learned that Jeff has a friendship with CM Punk. And I used to be a huge wrestling fan. I'm not so much anymore, but you know, I, I, I was really, I was really impressed by him. He sat there quietly as we did all of the interviews. And then he did an interview with Jeff and I, and you know, he is a, like, whatever it is, he has it. Can you pause and for I've one always... second? Do you remember what he did? He came in the first day just to watch what we were doing and stayed yes. with us the whole day, and they did his interview the next day. Yes. That's a problem. Yes. Yeah, you know, I I was really, first of all, I couldn't believe that somebody would actually want to sit there and <laughs> watch this. Now we were talking. Hang on, we were talking to a couple of his favorite hockey players. But still, <laughs> I couldn't believe anybody wanted to sit there and watch this. Okay, All right. and he was. Uh, but uh, you know, I was really impressed by him, and you know, I started to watch some of his clips and some of the stuff he did, and whatever it is, he's got it. And obviously, he's a huge presence, one way or the other, like him or hate him. He is an enormous presence. And there were some times that, you know, I know you and him kept in touch, and I'll ask you about that in a second. There were a couple of times I, I kept in touch with him through DMs. For example, when we broke the story that Chicago had put Duncan Keith 
uh, on the market and that maybe he was going to be traded, he reached out to me to ask for more information. And the day that he was traded to Edmonton, before I even uh, reported it on Twitter, I actually sent him a note saying, you know, I I think it's going to happen today because I knew he really cared. But you and him have kept a really a steady stream of conversation going, right? He's a fascinating guy. First of all, we have a lot of mutual interests um, like you and him. I mean, we basically, more than anything else, we text about the Chicago Blackhawks. Like, it's a lot of hockey texts. Uh, like, recently, there's been a lot of, you know, Connor Bedard, obviously, going back to the draft and the lottery last year. Uh, there was the Jonathan Taves uh, situation. Will he, won't he, is he, isn't he, et cetera. Um, whenever we talk about wrestling, though, it usually revolves around, it's funny, it revolves around wrestling stories and it revolves around two people who we both really like. One is Harley Race and the other is a Japanese legend by the name of Mitsuhara Misawa. Um, so we're both huge fans. So a lot of our conversations tend to revolve around those two. And he knows that I don't have a lot of time to follow the current product. I, I just don't like it. I mean, you know what it's like, Elliot. Like, you got a lot going you, on. We can barely watch, get this podcast done. You watch so like there's just so much you have to follow. Like put it this way. I went to see Tool last week and I felt completely naked on the radio show the next day because I hadn't watched all the games. Like, and I just, I just hate that feeling. Like I don't like that feeling of not being prepared or not having seen at least part of everything the night before, but nonetheless, it's tool. And I got to meet a couple of guys in the band. So like once in a lifetime opportunity, every now and then you got to do it. Um, but after last night, you know, and, and you texted me last night, essentially saying, we're talking about this tomorrow. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, watched all the clips on social and saw how it went down. And I got notes from people like what the F holy F like when a wrestling angle pops, like you could really feel it. Like I can only imagine how deafening a sound that was yesterday. Like the only thing that I can kind of relate it to was when, and again, this was in Chicago as well, I believe, when Chris Jericho left WCW and went to WWE and made his debut on Raw. Remember they did that big countdown clock? Yes. Um, Y2J. Jer yeah, and Jericho appeared and it was like the most deafening pop you've ever heard. And that covers off like, Hogan slamming Andre and various, you know, Austin matches or the rock, et cetera. Like that pop was in it's legendary and people still talk about it to this day. And people were equating what happened Saturday night with CM Punk to that type of pop. And all he had to do was come out because the backstory to all of this was so good. But what got you to, to, to notice this? Because like right away, like the text came in, we're talking about this. <laughs> well, what got me to notice it was everybody was talking about it, right? Yeah. And the one thing that I was, I was curious about with you was, so like I don't know the behind the scenes stuff, but I know Seth Rollins is, and I know who... Uh, Drew McIntyre is, and yeah. I know who Rhea Ripley is, right? Yeah. And so there were videos of Seth Rollins visibly angry, <laughs> and there was a report that Drew McIntyre stormed out of the arena, and yeah. apparently there were videos of Rhea Ripley giving him the finger. Yeah. So what I I always assume that all this stuff is a work, right? I assume it's it's good instinct because it's good you know instinct. it's wrestling and they're good at it. 
But I was wondering, because I know how polarizing he is, and I know there are some people who legitimately don't like him. So I was wondering, according to you, was this stuff a work or was it real? Yes, yes, yes. We just said yes to both things. You can't say yes to both things, work or real. No, this was a total work. This This was a total work. Now, was there some legitimate... You know, he between Phil, sorry, his real name is Phil Brooks, between Phil and, and people in the company stretching back years. Yeah. Did he spend a long time ripping the company? Yeah. Which all plays into the storyline here. But, you know, it's like everybody in the industry always, and I think this is the right perspective to have, always assumes work with anything. And there was only, here, I'll share something with you, Elliot. There was only one time that I found it really, really tasteless. Um, but this gives you sort of a peek into how people think in the industry. The night that Owen Hart died, which would have been 1999 at Kemper Arena in Kansas City, uh, I was on the air doing the live audio wrestling show, and we had all watched the pay-per-view. And so I start calling people to come on the show to talk about Owen. And I uh, called Terry Funk, and Terry said he, uh, he wouldn't be able to come on because he was too mad at Vince McMahon. And he was gonna, if he came on, he was going to say something that he was going to regret. Um, I got a number of people that knew Owen from the Stampede days, some of which were working for WWE at that time, um, most notably Chris Benoit. Uh, but there was one person, I think I've told the story before. If I haven't, then this is the first. I just found it really tasteless. I remember I called Wayne Ferris. And Wayne Ferris... Oh, you had Wayne Ferris's number? Honky Tonk Man. Honky Tonk Man, yeah. So I called him and I was like, did you just watch what happened? And he said, I'm not going to come on because I'm not going to be part of it. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, it's a work. Like, stop it. I'm not going to come on and be part of the storyline. You're getting work. Don't do it. I'm like, no, like Owen's dead. Like he's, he's passed away. And he couldn't, he couldn't believe that that wasn't a work. Like that's how ingrained everybody has it in wrestling, that whatever you see isn't quote unquote real. Yeah. Everything is a storyline. Um, but no, this is all, it gets a great storyline. And I think when wrestling's at its best, you have that, I'm not sure about it. I, I think, you know, I, I think that, you know, the, uh, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart feud had that element to it. I think that historically Vince McMahon has always liked his wrestlers to believe other things about opponents they have in programs in order to get more realistic matches. You know, I've heard plenty of stories about Vince saying one thing to a wrestler about something that his opponent said to him, et cetera, just to get the ire up. Um, that's sort of industry standard uh, for how Vince McMahon would behave with a lot of his programs. But this was this was a work. It was just a great one. Like It really was. And it's it's interesting, too. So I, I knew that you wanted to talk about it. So I so I texted Phil and I said, hey, Phil, heads up. Elliot wants to talk about this on the podcast. And he said, you know what? Just say I'm the greatest and the nicest and everyone loves me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And went on to talk about how he's inspired a generation of wrestlers, which is true. And like, look, he's, he's a guy and you can tell like right away, the minute he came out, like not only has he inspired a generation of performers, but also this guy's far from done. He's got a lot to give. And the thing about CM Punk is he's real smart and he knows the history of wrestling and he knows what works and he knows what doesn't work. 
And I think that, like, quite honestly, he's already laid like an impressive, like a really, really impressive body of work before us. But just given the nature of how all of this went down and all the promotion that's going to go on behind it, this might end up being his masterpiece. This really might. Because look, is that him draw, saying that or you he, saying that? I think it's I think it's gonna I think it's gonna happen. I really do. I, I think that, that this this could be the greatest angle he's ever been involved in. Like it, it it's shaping up already. Like everyone's already talking like this is gonna headline WrestleMania for one. Like, don't you think that listen, you texted me about it to talk about it on our hockey podcast. Yeah, that's true. Like wrestling does its best when it reaches outside of wrestling. And it sounds like this one has. But you know what? One thing I do want to mention. Um, whenever there's a situation where someone is involved in a, in a sport and they go too aggressively promoting themselves or their team, one of the criticisms, or one, one of the pejoratives that we always hear, or is treated like a pejorative is, oh, that's so pro wrestling. To which I always say, Sports can learn a lot from pro wrestling. Oh, I'm not. It's a show. I'm not arguing with from, you there. From a marketing point of view, uh, like I remember being uh, octagon side at UFC 40. This was a promotion we were doing with Viewer's Choice pay-per-view. And this was the one where they, the UFC really went for a pro wrestling style presentation, which they still have to this day. It wasn't just two guys in the octagon fighting and we're treating it like it's an amateur sport. This is... We're giving this some pageantry here. And it was like it was two great talkers on top, Tito Ortiz and Ken Shamrock, and they were fantastic. And Shamrock has a long, as we all know, pro wrestling background. So he was a perfect guy for it. But just the way that the event was presented and how they encouraged their athletes to antagonize one another. Like that like was it last podcast or two podcasts ago, you referenced Igor Shishterkin saying to the New Jersey Devils, Yeah, but did they win the Stanley Cup? Like even little things like that can go a long way. And that's ripped right out of the pages of pro wrestling promos, whether it's John Cena or Gorgeous George or Freddie Blassie or Steve Austin. It doesn't matter. It all leads to a really, really good place for your sport if you can rip a couple of pages out of pro wrestling. Agree, disagree? Agree. All right, that's me pontificating. And uh, that was better than anything you've ever said on this podcast about (laughs) hockey. (laughs) Just go back to do wrestling podcasts. I don't know if they'll ever have me back, but who knows? Stranger things have happened. Phil Brooks went back to WWE. So maybe there is a place for me in wrestling one day somewhere down the road. Uh, That's it for our wrestling slash hockey podcast for the week. On behalf of Elliot and Dom, uh, Merrick signing off here. Hope you have an enjoyable week with your favorite sport, that is hockey. We are back here Friday morning for another edition of 32 Thoughts. Enjoy your week.